Hi, and welcome to Walking Backwards. I'm Brad Gourmet. This is episode two, and my guest is Charles Pappert. Charles has been around the world of Steadicam for quite a long time. I've always been a big fan of his work, so it was really cool to talk to him. Um, as you'll find out, we didn't get to all the stuff I had planned on talking to him about. Um, you know, you get sidetracked with cool stories and this and that, and, um, you know, eventually you run out of time. So I will have to have him on again at some point, and we can continue our conversation. If you have any questions or comments, you can email walkingbackwardspodcast at gmail.com. So I'm sitting with Charles Pappert, who... Where? Oh, Where? What? In a studio. Imagine that. It's a questionable choice, but, you know, we'll go with it for now. And I'm just looking... I, I was glancing at your IMDb earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm familiar with some of your work anyway, or a lot of your work probably. And just quickly, I wrote down things that stood out to me. American History X, Scrubs, ER, Office Space, The West Wing... Action, which you probably don't get, maybe don't get asked about a lot with Jay Moore. Mm. Uh, Big Fat Liar <laughs> and Key and Peele. Okay. Now, Key and Peele was you shooting. Now, yes. you, you used to be a setting him operator. Right. Now you're a cinematographer, director of photography. Um, so we can chat about that a little because, I mean, yeah, you've got to give the people transition. their Key and Peele. Right. <laughs> you're right about that. Um, they demand it. But... Uh, well, I don't know. Since I mentioned them all, what was your best experience out of the out of what I just listed? Now I know there's factors involved, but sure. if you had to answer, I think it's hard to not look at ER and the West Wing as kind of the pinnacle for a Steadicam operator in television at that time and place. Which is to say that uh, when I was doing those, I was at a really good age to be doing that, which was sort of early 30s. So I had some years of experience behind me, but I was also super, you know, enthusiastic and energetic and physically capable of doing that work, which was really demanding. Mm-hmm. And the um, hours on, on, I don't know about ER, but I know on West Wing are, were very, very they were, long. They were long, yeah. So the... Situation, how I ended up with them, um, Dave Kamides, um was the second operator on ER, Guy B being the first, and mm-hmm. both of them phenomenal operators. You know, I mean, uh, ER, I think, was essentially the first television show that was designed around Steadicam from mm-hmm. the ground up. So the sets were built with continuity that a room led to another room and hallway led to a room and everything had ceilings and you could shoot in any direction throughout a stage, primarily for Steadicam to be able to move around and go from room to room. And Guy knocked it out of the park and really created a vocabulary for uh, for Steadicam in episodic television that hadn't been really there before, I think. I could be wrong about that. But um, he was amazing. And then he moved on after a few years, and Dave came in and uh, picked up the reins and went with it and did, again, amazing work. I mean, there's some – I know he did a one act, a a complete TV act of a one-hour drama as a one-er with, I can't think how they would have done it enough. If it was a thousand foot mag or it was three perf, that'd be a good question for Dave, who you should have on. Whatever it was, it went on and on and on. And, and you watching it now, it's almost exhausting to watch because you can just imagine someone having to do this physical act. Well, I'm thinking, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. <clears throat> you, you mentioned, so thousand foot mag, let's assume, mm-hmm. three perf, 
runs, uh, sorry, uh, 15 minutes? Yeah, it w- so it wouldn't have been quite that long. Uh, it was like 14 minutes. Yeah, I, the shot had to have, the shot was certainly yeah, not 10 even minutes. 14. I can't quite remember how he did it. but So it was one side, so that would work. I mean, yeah, it would very, work. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, but the... The well, they did that, that on X Files, yes. right? Sure, yeah, they, they, did. they did. Each segment was a one, right? Uh, that's right. And the the Queen Mary one was that, or a different one? I can't remember. Anyway, we're talking about other people. Let's talk about me, Fred. <laughs> Hello. Okay, fine. No, I, I hey, listen. You brought Dave up. You're right, and the the reason is that I've always been um, a huge fan of Steadicam before I was an operator, while I was an operator, and now after being an operator, I am a fan of Steadicam and everything. From Garrett Brown through the people that were the pioneers, the guys that I looked up to. Yeah. Then when I started getting into the mix myself, I had my peers who I looked up to. And now I hire operators that I look up to as operators and marvel at what they're able to do. And I will never be shy about saying to somebody, you did that shot better than I could have ever done it. That said, you know, I feel like I know what of my work I'm proud of. Sure. To this day, so it's really it's a perspective that I have. But I, you know, the craft of Steadicam is something that um, uh, I've found that even though I'm on the other side of it now, I still have a tremendous amount of affection for. Right. A large amount of that is due to how much respect and admiration I have for Garrett Brown, of course, the the creator of all this, because of the tone that he set. That wasn't just creating a machine and throwing it out into the world. It was training other operators. I took my workshop from him when I was 19. And that set the course for my next two decades. Well, I was going to ask you about that because you started to talk about who you looked up to and stuff. And mm-hmm. I knew you started very young. Right. I didn't know you were 19. That's, well, I don't know was, if that's well, a record, but for somebody no. who, <laughs> but for somebody who ends up taking a workshop at 19 is super young. Sure. Just to be able to afford it. You know, just to be able to pay that money or whatever, how you know, and uh, and um, um, I don't know why I brought that up, but re- regardless, just to be able to do it then, and but then to have a career in it. So a lot of people take the workshop. I fenced a lot of stolen goods to pay for the workshop. It was uh, solid, smart. So, uh, well, I mean, we can back up into the history of it because I think you know you can always cut it out or use it. Which well, is- fencing's one step further than pawning. Is it fencing means you were like a dedicated criminal? Pawning means you were a low-class, like, door opener on the street. I'm not into these specifics. I I did what I did. (laughs) Let's just move on. Gotcha. uh, So, so 19. So, so you grew up. Okay, wait. Now, you correct me wherever. Okay. Born in... England? Born in England, correct. London, uh, English whatever. Family. London, London, exactly. I, I grew up in London, whatever, with a comma in between. Until um, age? Until age six. Family moved over here for what was supposed to be a temporary jaunt to start a business, and we ended up staying mm. uh, in the Boston area. And in grade school, somewhere around 12, I started to develop an interest in cameras and television and film. I had a few experiences that led me into that um, that started to solidify through high school. And I loved shooting handheld, which at that point in my world was a VHS two-piece setup. That's mm-hmm. the kind we had in the 70s where you had a camera and a cable that went to a big deck around you. But I loved we shooting. We had one handheld. of those. Yeah, you know the deal. <laughs> for, for a minute. Yeah, they're, they're unbelievable. Magnavox. Sure, Magnavox. Um, I, I own two of those cameras now that I use, I used on Key and Peel for shooting sketches, Magnavox home video cameras. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, oh. yeah. Um, 
So you were so you were doing your 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 clumsy handheld work with a now it was, hanging around. I will here. say this: it was excellent handheld work. I actually have video. I still have uh, my original VHS tapes. I have some video of me running around my high school that I look at to this day, and I'm like, pretty damn good for a 16 year old. Um, because you know what, my heart was so in it, and I so desperately wanted it to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, my major influence at that time was actually uh, a PBS show, This Old House, mm. which was shot by a guy with an Ikigami hand, you know, shoulder-mounted camera, handheld. But he was so good, and they just they did these long extended takes. This is a, this Bob is a funny Vila, thing, I'm, right? Wasn't it Bob Vila? I'm hoping I'm saying it's the right show. I guess it would have been, but I mean, was he doing it in the seventies? I don't 80s? know. Would have to. I've never seen it. I know of it. I think that I think that was the case. Um, but again, this is late seventies, early probably early eighties, and it was these beautiful long takes. And this is just a let's walk around and talk about blah 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 type show. But as I found out eventually, there were cameramen all over the world who would send this guy fan mail because of this beautiful work that no one else was doing, and it was this incredibly solid handheld work. So I was very obsessed with that. This <laughs> solid handheld look. Um, and then eventually, well, let me. Yeah. If I, I, it occurs to me, <clears throat> you talked about the deck hanging on your shoulder, mm-hmm. and as we know, having I don't know how much that camera weighed. Let's call it fifteen pounds or whatever, mm-hmm. right? But you have a deck kind of counterbalancing you. Yes, kind of. I mean, those cameras were all very light. Honestly, they weren't fifteen pounds. They had to have been like five pounds. Those VHS. You think they were cameras. that small? The little one, the the home one, the consumer one. Yeah, I guess so. Um, the decks were probably heavier the, than the camera. The broadcast cameras were, were yeah, much I, heavier. I, I but know, I, I didn't have a hand on those when I was sixteen. No, I know that, and and I remember the exact. I used yeah. it. I, yeah. I remember, but there was a certain yes. You you bring up an interesting point. You did have this kind of diagonal going through your body from mass on your shoulder to a. Mass banging around your head. I'm hips. curious whether it it helped a little. <laughs> I can't imagine it did because if you really think about that thing clanging around your body, it's true. It was. Anytime you wrote, it can't have been good. Okay. <laughs> um, no, we'll take that one out of the realm. I mean, the first time I tried a Betacam, the one piece combined, I was like, oh my god. Yeah. Which was you know more similar to a classic dock camera from the film world, like an a um, an Eclair or yeah. an Aton. Sat very nicely on your shoulder, yes. well-balanced. And it was just the right weight and all that. You know, what I think is funny is that there, those cameras and even those early beta cams, not the earliest beta cams, which were very tall and, and uh, uh, uncomfortably tall mass, but the eventual body that was adopted by probably the early 90s, which to this day broadcast cameras still look like, are actually used to be very good masses. They were had light lenses on them, you had a battery in the back that were perfectly balanced on your shoulder and you could just let go. I worked at, I worked in news in you know 96, 97. I had a two-piece beta, not SP, oxide. Oh, oh God. Okay, yeah. Um, but so it the, wasn't it wasn't bigger and heavier, but it was tall but and the, it was yeah, the a two-piece. Piece. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, this is very esoteric stuff, but my point, what I was trying to make... But a lot of it, people will know exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, maybe. Strangely. So, uh, over but, a certain age, let's say. Yeah, the, kid, the kids have literally just clicked off to the next <laughs> podcast. They're like... <laughs> yeah, shut up, geezers. So, uninterested. Um, no, but my point was, I could. I used to shoot a lot of football, mm-hmm. and in between plays, I could take my. I could take my hands off the camera, right? And it would just sit on my shoulder. And and that I is the key. Jump around or move. But, yeah. yeah, And as Steadicam operators, we learned so much about mass and balance and trimming that uh, I don't know about you, but I I found that I've never. I've always seen cameras since. 
and during as you've got to get everything perfectly balanced, even if it's on your shoulder. That's the only logical way to work. What's funny to me over the last 10 years or so, especially with newer people coming into the industry with smaller, you know, less expensive rigs, is that um, the cameras have gotten smaller. The lenses haven't really gotten lighter. Mm-hmm. And so there's this whole front-heavy thing going on, and people deal with it by just, like, muscling through it. I'm like your work can never possibly be as good if your camera's in balance to begin with. It's just it's it's even if physics. you're great, it's going to suffer. Yeah, it because those to. your arms start shaking eventually. Yeah. And the <laughs> and the gimbals in front. I mean, we'll get into all that stuff. Oh, yeah. But yeah, it's like we we knew something about physics and the best way to work with the camera back then that seems to have gotten lost a little bit. Even the ma- the camera manufacturers, you've as we've probably seen the last few years, a lot of cameras come out with a cutout in the wrong place. They're front heavy. And you go, why would you make a cutout at the back half of the camera when all the weight is at the front? We know this. I mean, you're not going to put a 15-pound weight in the back to, to counteract it. The so, engineers won – well, the, the the computer guys won that battle or whoever somebody, it is. Desi- yeah. Whoever designing it because someone knows where it should be. Yes, somebody does, and their voice is getting shouted down. Obviously. Yeah. Um, so it's like, well, it'll cost us X amount more to move that up and move this thing we have here to the back or whatever yeah, the board, it might be. Yeah, all the boards staying close to the sensor is more logical. Something, right. I, I guess. Or really, it's, well, all these people seem to be perfectly happy with that. Well, they're buying it. So yeah, they're buying it. It must yeah. be good. Right. All right, let's let's rewind a little bit because we've gone five steps That's out okay, of, though. That's, that's fine. Good. That's what editing That's for. fine. So, you, so you're in Boston. You're, you're, you're shooting your, your handheld... Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm running around my school with with uh, borrowed VHS two piece setups, <laughs> and then around this time, when my sophomore year of high school, The Shining came out, and I went to see this movie, and I saw shots that I, even with my, you know, not very sophisticated brain, said I don't understand how that was done, the hedge maze following the big wheel around, and I thought, what is where there are tracks that I can't see overhead? What, how is this done? And I read um, some articles about it that mention the Steadicam. And I was like, what is the Steadicam? Um, in Boston, I had no chance of knowing that in 1980, so or finding that out. Right. Um, but I finally found a copy of American Cinematographer on the newsstand. And in it was an article from by Ted Churchill, New York operator, saying Steadicam and operator's perspective. I'm sorry, it was the article was called Steadicam and Operator's Perspective. And for the first time, I'm seeing pictures, and I'm reading what a Steadicam is, and I'm all in. And at that moment, it was like, that's what I want to do with my life. Wow. So it took me— Uncle Teddy. Uncle Teddy, yeah. And it took me about a decade after that to actually become a Steadicam operator, but it was a road that I never wavered in my dedication. Well, you would have been 15 when you read that, no? Ish, yeah. So something like that. So, I mean, four years later, you're taking a workshop. Yeah. That's— You know, most 15-year-olds that set their sights on something, you know. Well, that's how obsessed I was. Well, six months later, their sights are different. So it it really does say a lot to how obsessed you were. And where was that, the Pennsylvania workshop? Uh, That was Rockport, Maine. Okay. International workshops. (laughs) Right. um, Which at that point was kind of the best known one. Um, there's a documentary out there that you can find on YouTube. It was a National Geographic piece on Garrett that the last – third or so is from our workshop and there's a little teenage me running around in there going why did i not know this i will send you a link oh great um and you can put the link at the bottom of the, i don't know <laughs> um <laughs> wait a second audio only so um 
what happened in between there was... Well, wait, I, start with HTTP... No, okay, go on. Is it <laughs> reverse back? Forward slash. So I uh, went to NYU for film. Yeah. And NYU film wasn't a great fit for me because I was interested in working in the industry and my tastes were Spielberg and, you know, relatively mainstream filmmaking. Mm. NYU was very artsy and still is, I think, to a degree. But certainly in the 80s, it was... Um, avant-garde, uh, and I asked my professors about Steadicam, and there was this complete blank. So it was a little too abstract for your. It was a yes. It wasn't what I was interested in <clears throat> yeah. pursuing per se. It was a little disappointing for me. I didn't speak that language very well. So so how long did you last there? One year. Yeah, and I would have. Are you glad you did it? The uh, NYU. Yeah. Well, yes. It got me out of my suburban Boston existence and into New York in the early '80s, which. You know, anyone who lived in New York at any length of time at, at that time will always have a very specific memory of a, something that's gone now. The right. energy of that city. I mean, that was an incredible experience. Yeah. And the other part that was critical for me was I was now in the city that Ted Churchill lived in. Mm. And one day I cold called him and said, can Did I you, come you, visit you? Oh, wait, you were 19, so you knew who Garrett was already, of course. Sorry. I had read about, yes. These are people I read about. And I, in my mind, it was, for me, it was the version of anyone else uh, who's interested in celebrity reading about a celebrity. Right. You know, you know what so I mean? So you it's had like, a, right. These are these far off people that you'll never know. But, and I thought the same thing. I was like, oh, Garrett Brown, Ted Churchill, these guys are legends, and I'm just a kid. And he wrote this article that dazzled you and yes. was instantly kind of not your maybe your hero almost. Or oh, no, he was my hero. Okay. Absolutely. There's no question he was my hero. Okay. Because, I didn't want to put words in your mouth. Oh, sure. No, no. It was, it was absolute hero worship because he was a guy who was doing what I was interested in yeah. and talking about it in a way that was fascinating um, and evolved and all-encompassing and artistic and, and he had charisma too oh but, yeah you know, Ooh, yeah, I, I, know I never i never met yeah. the guy but i've heard so much about him but yep. so so you cold called him cold called him yep and i you know very very nervous and i mean this is how little i understood about the industry i thought i was going to get a secretary or an assistant I, you know i was like this guy is a big important camera guy how you know he's not going to answer you thought his own you were phone. <laughs> Right. You can imagine, but this is, you know, I'm a kid. I don't know how this stuff works. Of course. Um, but no, he answered, and I explained who I was and what my interest was, and I'd read his articles and so forth. And he said, well, I'm shooting tomorrow at the New York Public Library. Why don't you come down and visit? And I said, gee, let me think about that for a second. Okay, I'll be there. Um, and I showed up bright and early, and there's trucks down the street and... The whole thing is a big and movie. you're just like I'm on a big movie. Yes, set. the first time, like, finally, just out of your mind. Yeah, I mean, this is what I've dreamed of, and he in he walks, and it's for me, it's again like for a lot of people meeting a movie star. Sure, that's what it felt like, um, and it was very you know uh, pleasant and generous, and invited me in the back, and he was balancing the Steadicam, smoking his signature pipe, and that was amazing to watch. I'm seeing a Panavision camera close up, and uh, you know the Steadicam, and sure, Ted Churchill, and then. He starts to shoot and invites me. He says, yeah, you go hang out in the corner, keep your mouth shut, and you're welcome to, to watch. And we were at the New York Public Library, and there's some guys, the actors come in down the end of the – and I'm like, oh, what's going on down – who are these guys? I don't know. And then one by one I recognized Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and suddenly realized – well, I didn't suddenly realize anything. It was just a, a movie, but it turned out to be Ghostbusters. So I got to watch Ghostbusters being shot that day, and I ultimately went back a few more times. Um so that 
really that literally that day is when I decided this is what I want to do with my life. This is amazing. This is it. Crazy. Everything about this is just where I want to be. It feels just right. And being in school does not feel right. So right. I would have quit that day if I'd been given the option to. But I, I finished out the year. And uh, but I knew this is what I needed to do was become a steadicam right. operator. So did you so uh, did you stay in touch with Ted a lot? I mean, you said you went back a few times. Did you stayed in touch? Did he help your career? Did he you know what? <clears throat> he was, how did that? It, yeah, I mean, he was supportive. I was so young and, and knew that it was it was not uh, the the helping thing was perhaps a bit more subtle than it may have been if I had already been working. It's hard to say, but he was. Um, he was a very interesting mentor to have. Um, I came over one day, and he was practicing on the wheels because he had a conventional operating job. And Ted had come out of docks and so forth when he became a steady cam operator, so he didn't come up through the camera assistant conventional mm-hmm. operator route. He sort of, like, slid into the industry. And at that time, you didn't get hired as both. There was no Correct. slash. So That's right. You, Ted, was, Ted was mainly hired as a steady cam operator. Right. And he would go in to do one shot. Every one day right. or whatever, and, and it was. hang out for the rest <clears throat> right. of the day. Yeah, you know, waiting to work. Right, right. And I've heard many stories about him, and well, not many, but a couple stories about him and maybe other people double dipping. Where one movie called them and said, <laughs> "We need you from like eight a.m. Mm. till maybe noon, but probably ten, You know, right. And he'd say, oh, "Okay." And then another job would call for two p.m. to eight, and they'd double dip two different movies in one day. It was an amazing, and probably, and at a rate that was absolutely. Astronomical than it is now, even with adjusted dollars or non-adjusted dollars. Yeah, so those those were the good old days. Um, what did Garrett call it originally? Was the cash machine or green machine? I think he called Steadicam. Oh, because I've never it was, heard him say that. Oh. It was just you were just making money. You're printing money as a Steadicam operator because yeah. there were so few back then. Yeah, but you still had to be able to to do the job, and certainly, uh, you know, Garrett and Ted were the the two top guys. So I felt very fortunate to. To know him and to hang out with him and go over his apartment in West Beth in New York, and but as I was saying, so he had. I walked in one day and he had, um, he had rented oh, a, a, a Warhol head and he rigged up a video camera on top of the monitor on the back, and all that sounds incredibly like, yeah, what's the big deal? Nobody was doing that setup in the '80s. He was incredibly technical and smart about everything. So, um, and I said, well, that looks cool, and he, he says, oh, you want to give it a try? I was like, okay. And he said, all right, here's here's the shot. Put the crosshair on this, trace it up to here, go over here, go over. I never touched the wheels in my life. I'm sweating bullets. And I'm, what, 17, 18 years You're old? You're dying to impress him. Yeah. And I'm very slow and just, like, trying to figure out which wheel does what. Right. And I get halfway through it, and then I go the wrong direction. and goes, eh, you're out of here. You know, just like, that's it. You're off him. You know, so... It wasn't the slow, steady, patient kind of thing. You had to sort of like come firing on all cylinders to hang out with Ted. Uh, but that was a – listen, it was an education. That's funny. Yeah. So um, I so, quickly realized that I needed to take the workshop. Right. And I did that within a year or so and scraped together whatever money I could to do that. But I had also left school. So that was a money savings right there. Yeah, like, well, that's true, right. Yeah, it was yeah. a lot cheaper than NYU to go to, uh, to the steady camp. Well, in New York wasn't the price as it is now. I'm sure it wasn't cheap, but uh, you know, <laughs> you could live in the city as a student or as a non-student. Is the case where I mean, honestly, I my memories of living in the village were constantly walking past things that I couldn't take advantage of because they were too expensive. Wow, oh, you know, okay. incredible jazz clubs. With the, when I think of the names I saw in the marquees, I'm like. 
as I was a musician also, I was yeah. a jazz musician, and I'm like, boy, that would be great, but you know, ten dollar cover, what? I can't do that. It was probably five dollars. I mean, right? I just I, I didn't have a, it. Was like after each. I didn't tomorrow, have a dollar so in my I pocket. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, yeah. that is neither here nor there. So I, I hightailed it back to Boston and was like, okay, I'm gonna figure this thing out. I'm gonna start working, and I'm gonna become a Steadicam operator. But I didn't. You know, those days you didn't jump into it. So I tried. I built a home built rig, home build. I built a rig up from like scrap metal. Um, and I didn't even know what I was doing with that. And today, when I think about what I figured out mechanically with no background in it, like, that's how much I wanted it. I just willed myself to build a, an object that I had no knowledge of, of how to do because I wow. just wanted it so much. It didn't work very well, but at least it was a start. And uh, one way or another, I started PAing. I started shooting little things on the side and eventually – um, through some twists and turns, about five years later, I bought my first Steadicam. Wow. After working full-time at a production company for two and a half years and saving all my money and buying a beat-up old Model 1. Wow. And was in absolute heaven at that point. And, you know, hung up my shingle, and I'm a Steadicam operator for hire. I'm finally there. I've made it. How fast did the work come? Um, f- flooding consider- in? No, I was certainly not flooding. <laughs> um, but... It started to come. I was in a small market. You know, I was in Massachusetts. There was, I bought the rig that had been the single rental rig in New England. Uh, So that was pretty good. Um, There was one more rig in town. One more, there was one main operator. There was a couple, they just started to come out with the smaller rigs like the EFP and the SK and the mm. things like that. So it was a little bit of that, but. I kind of scratched my way through it for a few years. I was DPing a certain percentage of jobs. I was doing Steadicam and gradually moved up from Model 1 to Model 3 um, and uh, was getting pretty good. You know, I would like any Steadicam operator, You, the only way to really become good as a Steadicam operator is to be obsessed with it, as I'm sure you know. You have to absolutely want this thing. I'm, I'm sure well, it you, takes so long to learn. It takes yes. You can't you can't even get okay at it for quite a while, and I'm yeah. talking about years because it takes that long to even get chances to use it in jobs and right. And I mean, unless you have well, back then the weight thing was different. It was really hard to rig something up to practice with. You had to have like a real camera, right? So it was hard. And I mean, you started before I did, but. You know, it was hard even for me. I would look at the cases like, oh, I wish I could just, like, throw this thing on. But, you know, yeah. then you figure out ways. But um, Yeah, and the, the older gear was – it was harder to be good with the older Steadicams. You had yeah. more things to overcome. Sure. Mine was falling apart in every possible way. It had vibration that I could It didn't even dynamic balance, out. right? Oh, it's certainly – Model 1? Oh, my God. Model 2s didn't either, correct? Not out of the box, no. And everyone right. was modifying, and this is – you know, the the – Internet for Steadicam, the first Steadicam forum on AOL started around 94, 95, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and by that, then you were already I was full I was swing. well established. Yeah. So yeah. in those years prior, you would call people up out of their ads in American Cinematographer or wherever and be like, hey, <laughs> you don't know me, but can you – I'm just curious. I'm trying to figure I out how to get X this. to Z, how blah, 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 blah. And this is what's amazing. I mean, I have any number of stories of calling up people, I think because of my original experience and from taking the workshop and starting to get to know Garrett and how he worked, 
finding out that there was this thing called the Knights of the Green Screen, which was his, you know, acute name for his philosophy is we're all, we should all help each other because we need to expand the craft. We need to expand the number of operators doing it. We want to keep this thing overall as a positive experience for producers and directors. So we have nothing to lose by helping each other. We have everything to gain. Which is if really we want the, if we want the profession to grow and to continue yes. on, we have to support our 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 fellow yeah well competitors. We have to support our support competitors. Our competitors. And so they when they show up on a job, they do a good job. Yeah, and their if their gear breaks, we show up and help them fix it. Exactly. And uh, I, I was I was actually talking to Josh Harrison recently, and we were talking about this exact kind of thing. And I said, yeah, there was a time when an operator I remember seeing on the forum. Uh, Holy shit, I left my docking bracket at home. I'm at Warner Brothers. Can anybody bring me one? And it was you. That's right. And I was going to say, that sounds familiar. I'm pretty sure, well, somebody brought it to you, and I remember you had one within like 45 minutes or an hour. Yes. And that's, that's the spirit of the, you know, of, of, the, of the profession. Mm-hmm. Nice people. Again, not everybody, but uh, you can exclude me from that group, but. Uh, sure. I'll- <laughs> In a word, yes. I made that no. too easy for you. Exactly. No. But that, that's the thing. And because I had – there was a few people um, out there, Peter Abraham I'm going to single out, who didn't know me from Adam but drove an hour to deliver me a piece of gear for free of wow. his when I was on a shoot in New York. Uh, Janice Arthur was someone who I had met when she was teaching at the workshop in Rockport. But I called her up a few times and picked her brain. She's Chicago, right? She's yeah. Chicago, yeah. You, you would call up these people and introduce yourself and – they weren't just helpful. They would talk for an hour and help mm-hmm. you in all these different ways. And um, and that was so wonderful. And I felt that I would be remiss at best and a dick at worst if I didn't do the same thing. Right. So I always tried to do the same. So, to, Well, because that's how all that specialized knowledge got. Got passed around. Right. Yeah, that's how people learn. Like, this is how you make the 3A monitor work. Oh, wait, nobody ever learned that. But if you think uh, about <laughs> it, in most professions that were that um, specific, it's exact opposite. I have trade secrets I'm going to hold on to. Right. You don't get to learn about what I do because that'll, you know. I've, that'll, made, that'll, I've made my stuff work. Yeah. I don't want you to know. Right. Right. So, yeah. but thanks to Garrett, that, that vibe was put out there. This is how we're going to make this craft better for all of us, which is very rare and special. Um, that's so cool. Yeah. I, I, um, yeah, that's so great to hear. And I wish I'd known, I wish I'd known Ted. I've heard so many stories. There's so many good ones, but a unique character. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so you were Boston from what year to what year? Um, so I got the rig in 89, 90. Oh, wait, I have to open a beer. Okay. Okay. There we go. Oh shit. And it's spilling everywhere. I wish you guys could see this. It's down his shirt. It's on his it pants. It did the same thing yours did. Yep. I thought it would be over by now. There's little drops. There's beer all over his pants, but not at the crotch, which is interesting, because that's that would have been the better part. I would have laughed. At that. Oh well. All right. I did some cleaning. Okay. Uh, do we? Do, we, do you want to? Do you want to stop and do? Okay. <clears throat> all right. <laughs> um. So the room shit. is filling up with suds right now. <laughs> Something's with this. This I've never had this before, even Keel. But um, Ballast Point, good, good brewery. Well, Ballast nice Point's great, for, uh, but I've never had sculpting. this. This, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, it's, a, so it's not were, a good podcast beer. Apparently not. They make a podcast beer. Something to talk to them about. They do. I don't know. That'd oh, be they great. should. Uh, Ballast Point's podcast. Got it. <laughs> um, so, so podcast okay. IPA. So, so you were <laughs> <laughs> podcast <laughs> IPA. <laughs> 
super high alcohol. Work like, on this. This could be a twelve point three percent. It's got to be a session. It has to be a session. <laughs> well, this is a session. This. That's why I bought it. I figured we're doing this in the afternoon. It's a comedy session. It's for comedy podcasts because it, it spills up all over the place. It gives them a yeah. talking point. Uh, anyway, so this is no digression whatsoever. <laughs> Well, I don't mind this. I like to talk about it's whatever. Banter. But I, well, I don't well, want it to be, you know, just blah, blah, blah. Camera, I, I don't camera, care what you want it to be. It's going to be what I want it to be. Oh, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot who I'm talking to. <laughs> so, so uh, okay. Uh, well, let me try to put, get a handle back on it. So, wait. So, you were in... So you were in Boston, and then did you do anything you considered major in Boston, or did you have to move to... Okay. Very good question. The... The tricky part about being an operator in a small market was, A, you had to convince people back then that they needed Steadicam to begin with. Mm. There was very little understanding. Because small market work is basically corporate, local and regional commercials, low-budget features or whatever. Um, and these days, everyone, you know, anybody knows about this stuff. Steadicam has become such a household world. I remember the last time you talked to somebody who wasn't even in the industry and had to explain what a Steadicam was. Almost everyone has an understanding or they know the term. They may not know what it looks like, but back then you said Steadicam, it was just blank, even with people in the industry sometimes yeah. in the 90s. Well, we do live in L.A., so a lot more people are going to know. Sure, but, but my point is But you think that's true now. everywhere else? Everywhere else now, You think yes, it is? Absolutely, because this... Everyone started shooting with 5Ds and has black magic cameras and reds. Or knows somebody who does or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Right. Or their mom. Right. (laughs) So I think, you know, there's not the rarity that there once was. But for me, I had to do as much educating of what Steadicam was, what it wasn't, Mm. what it would be good for and how to use it as I was looking for jobs. Mm. Um, That felt like I had to be an ambassador for the brand um, when I was starting out. And I had a pretty good thing going, um, but what I really wanted to do was work on those big movies like I had mm. seen with Teddy working on with the trucks up and down the street and, you know, the real thing. And when they came to town, I tried to get, to get a meeting and they go, well, you don't have the credits. And I go, right. look at my reel and I go, but you don't have the credits. Right. Um, and that was really tough. Well, of course it does. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why wouldn't it? But especially when you're in an out-of-town situation. Yeah, you know, yeah. Obviously, it's like there might be someone who's perfectly qualified in another city, but they're going to bring the operator because of the relationship. And it, it makes sense. Yeah. But that was that was more than it is now. That's changed quite a bit. I mean, now there are... Well, there are, because of incentive states. Yeah. yeah well, everybody states. shoots in Chicago and New York and Atlanta mm-hmm. and everywhere else, Ohio, wherever. Yeah. So, I mean, I get calls... Quite often, because I've done a lot of work out of town, I get calls from those towns. Mm-hmm. They see my name on a call sheet, and they call me mm. and say, hey, we have a movie, blah, blah, blah. Are you local? Mm. And I go, no. And they go, thanks so much. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and it's all about them saving, you know, the money, which I understand. Yeah. But um, it is. <laughs> Things have changed in all directions and will keep changing with regard yeah. to that. But back then, uh, Massachusetts was not in it's certainly not an incentive state. It was a lull for big shows coming in anyway. I mean, at least you had Boston, where, like, if there was a Boston movie, uh, which there were, I'm sure, sometimes, right? Lo- I mean, indies. I, I worked How on How was it, really? Yeah. I mean, for instance, what we had on a larger scale was there was the... Um, but you could David, get David it. Mamet was doing a few movies that were around Boston mm. at that time. Uh, Goodwill Hunting. Mm. That sort of thing. And I tried to get on all of those. The Mammoth one was a 
hilarious situation because a producer would put me on hold and then release me on every single one of those. And I found out later when he, he wrote his book about filmmaking a few years later, and there's a passage where he says, I hate Steadicam. <laughs> Who was this? Mamet, David Mamet. Oh, David Mamet said he yes. hates Steadicam. Yeah. Oh, so I thought you meant the producer. No, no, no. <laughs> it was literally like they would sort of put so it in as a line item. So the producer would be like, we got to have this. Well, you know, they would assume it would be in there as a line item and oh. then it would just get taken out. So that was a bummer for me. Um, Goodwill <clears throat> Hunting, I was on hold for the scene, the night that they're uh, they're in Harvard Square and they walk up to the Harvard bar mm-hmm. and then back out again and the, you know, um, how do you like these apples? That yeah. was going to be a Steadicam walk and talk. At least for a period of time it was. And then I got released like a day or two before. And at the time it was like, oh, it's just another they movie. Did, they I didn't, didn't use get. any steady camera. No, right? it was handheld. Yeah. yeah. And I, of was course, low budget. that would have been so great to have worked on that. I would have loved that. What a um, cool credit. I know. So I didn't get any of those. I did some cool – there was a film called Squeeze that was a locally produced indie that got picked up by Merrimax that was a ton of steady cam. Um, I worked my nuggets off on that movie. But we were – all young and scrappy, and had, there was a lot of cool ideas. And Rob uh, Patton Sproul, who was the director on that, was just like, I want to do these big oneers. I want to do all this cool stuff. And uh, I really got to roll up my sleeves and get involved very deeply in the design of these shots. And it was it was cool. super fun. Was that when you started finding out like how deep you could go? Because like as far as like when you get into TV, we talked about West Wing for a minute, mm-hmm. which we'll I think we'll get back to in a little bit, but. Um, um, so part of my early career, I'll use myself as a, mm-hmm. um, where you do something new or you do a lot of takes, you find out where you're, you find out where the cliff is, where if I do another one, I'm going to fall down. Yeah. Like, because there's a physical, um, that's such a big barrier to get over. Nowadays, I, I don't ever, it doesn't bother me mm. unless I'm doing a running shot or something. Um, not to say that I can go forever, but I very rarely have a director going, go again, and I can't. Mm, that's good. Um, I'm not – sorry. I'm not trying to brag. No, no, no. It's, it's, a, it's an ism. Either you can or you can't. And I, I, yeah. got, I got pushed on some shoots early on where I literally – my legs just stopped. Like there was mm. a music video in the freezing cold, full mag takes, um, you know, go doing again, a one form, form, Well, just – or just shooting, super long, go back and right, forth, right, back and right, forth, right. outside, freezing, freezing cold, and it was like at a certain point, my literally my legs froze up. I was like, I can't keep doing these back and forth, you know, low mode, blah blah blah, and I literally just came to a stop, and I was like, I, I give me a break, and I can go again, except that it's twenty five degrees out, you know. Yeah. Um, and you know, I I will admit that that happened. I was. N- I mean, here's the thing I can well, say. Well, that's happened uh, to everybody at some point. Most everybody people. Does say. I mean, here's what I'm going to say about Steadicam operators in general uh, and something that I think I learned early on and took a little bit from Ted and some other people. What I was interested in as a Steadicam operator was finesse moves and thinking about the shot and designing the shot to make it as interesting as possible and getting into the nuances. I was never really interested in showing – that's how I wanted to show off, quote, unquote, or to be and to be known as a Steadicam operator, that I can turn the shot into something far more interesting than a director or DP might have conceived it by by adding these little grace notes in there. Um, What I didn't care about was being the kind of operator that was thought of as being a beast that could go Mm -hmm. and go and go all day long. 
that wasn't my interest, and it also wasn't how I was built. I, was I just, don't care about that either, but you get forced into that. Well, you at least get forced into your limit. Is That that was the point I... Yes, and we all... We all yes, exactly. But I, I sort of... But your limit increases over it, over time, time you, and you experience. Get, you get stronger, but you yeah. also learn how to control it. I remember yeah. someone once saying, during a shot where I had to you know, bring the rig across one side of the body to the other in the middle of the shot because I had to get through a door, whatever it was, they said, how are you able to do that where the battery is literally an inch from grazing your leg all the way around? Mm-hmm. I said, because you just learn how to keep it as close to your body as possible because that has the it tires you out the least. So you just learn how to do that. That's a natural thing. A newer operator is going to have it way in front of them because they're nervous about banging into their body. And, and then that, on that next take, they'll slam it into their leg because they're tired. Right. Some and they're trying to keep it close. Sure. Right. Um, the better you get as a steady game operator, the, learn, the more you learn how to be, quote unquote, lazy at it, which is to say to use up the least amount of energy. Mm-hmm. That's just a smart way of dealing with steady cam, I think. And there are certain operators that go, ah, screw that. I don't have to worry about that stuff. I can go forever. And some of them can. But that just wasn't my focus. Um, I felt that I had more to offer than I'm the guy that can go, that can just shoot and shoot and shoot. Sure. Um, so, um, all right. So, Boston, I did my thing. Right. So, that movie with a lot of Steadicam. Yeah, which was great. And Squeeze, was it? Squeeze. Yeah. Yep. Um, got a full card cred- title credit at the front of the movie, which wow. was pretty cool. There's about five or six of us who were sort of key players, you know, not department heads. That Good for you. Got those credits. What, what, are the, what year was that? 96, maybe? Okay. Released. Yeah. What would have been the budget on? Um... Like half a million, maybe. Okay. Um, BL4. Oh, Ari BL4. One of, just a beast of a camera. But mm. it flew great. Yeah, it did. <laughs> I mean, it was hard to stop or start. But, yes. But once it was moving, man, it it, it was hard to. If yeah, the wind was, blew, it didn't yeah, notice. It was an aircraft carrier. <laughs> That's true. But on those long takes, the you know you had four pounds of film displacing from one side to the yeah, other, you did. so you had to deal with that. Yeah. Um, now here's how what, how would you normally deal with that? Would you would you balance your rig towards to, towards yeah? You'd bias it one direction, mm. and then by the so end, so in it was the middle of the direction. mag, you you had your sweet spot. Yeah. yeah. So it was a little bit of muscling through. Not ideal. Um, these are the kind of things that what's kind of what's funny for anyone over a certain age who was a steady cam operator for X number of years. We do the, oh, when I was a kid, you know, these stories about the difficulty of the film days. And what was funny was at that point we're all online. I'm talking about this film. And the, some of the L.A. guys are like, just say no. And I'm like. I live in a market where you, mm. there aren't alternatives. Mm-hmm. We didn't have Panavision in Boston unless it came in for a show. The 535 came in at one point. We got a 535B. I was one of the first. I remember using it on something, actually a feature that I shot, my first feature mm. that I shot. That The camera or the mags came in in cardboard boxes from the rental house to the set because it was, like, so new it hadn't even been, like, So Ari sent system. it to them. They hadn't even checked it out. And basically. they just sent it straight, just to, sent me. It straight yeah. to you. I remember yeah, my yeah. poor camera assistant, like, going, I've never loaded these mags before, and you're putting me right onto a working set with them. I'm like, hey. He's looking on the inside times. of the door yeah. with the <laughs> diagram. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> the, the fox goes into the hole. <laughs> um, let's see. So That's funny. So, so at some point, I assume, you just had a – you just realized – I need, I I said I want to I I need bigger I need better 
Uh, and well, I'm, your dream wasn't being realized. My dream wasn't being realized. Right. I wasn't getting to do what I felt I, where I wanted to be. Right. Now, there was uh, two... There was a really pivotal thing that happened to me in the 90s, which was I was started to get invited to um, teach Steadicam uh, initially at Rockport, again, mm. in Maine. Um, Paul Taylor was instructing, and because I was local, I went up there and helped, and helped teach, and we had a great time doing that. I really enjoyed teaching Steadicam. Where was, was Paul Taylor from? from? He's L.A., I believe. Oh, he's L.A.? Okay. Yeah, L.A. operator who... I, I never met him. I've known of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, lovely guy and very good instructor. And he had his own sort of fiefdom up there in Rockport. And we had a lot of – it was a really fun. It was like summer camp. Um, and we were – the Steadicam guys were the bad boys. Um, we were the, the lead guitarists. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, because uh, there were a bunch of other groups going, like yes. cinematography classes. And Editing, that, right? acting. Yeah. Right. So at night, a lot of you would hang out together, go to the bar, have drink and people's yeah. or whatever it might be. Exactly. Have and fun. Yeah. It was. Uh, <laughs> I'm not even going to get into a lot of the stories from there, but it was. Uh, you can it tell was, them to it me was a lot off of fun. It, off the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, however, uh, the the big story being, yes, I was I was getting to teach, and um, a guy named Chuck Jackson, who worked for Cinema Products, which was the original licensee for Steadicam. Um, invited me to come and teach out in Malibu at the workshops there. Mm. Um, and they would fly me out, and I'm like, wow, L.A., okay. Except that it wasn't L.A. It was Calamigos Ranch in Malibu. So it was being picked up at the airport and driven for, you know, an hour out to some ranch in the middle of nowhere. But I'm like, cool, there's a palm tree. <laughs> um, but it was really fun, and Garrett taught a lot of them, and... What actually was uh, – that was always amazing. I, I would learn so much. I was getting flown out to L.A., paid, and then I got to be around and listen to these amazing operators that was improving my craft. Pay, so you were paid to do win. something you would have definitely done yeah, I, uh, I, for free. Exactly. Paid, at least. Paid, paid for. Yes. Right. Um, and one of those or one or two of those, Larry McConkie taught. Mm. And I knew of Larry a little bit. I can't remember if we'd met before the workshops, but I had also revered him as an operator for, you know, the amazing, obviously, work that we all looked up to, Goodfellas and all those other shots that were incredible. Mm -hmm. And when he would describe his working method and how he'd approach shot design, I felt so honored to be in the room and hearing all of this and the other teachers as well. Our minds would just be blown. It mostly went over the students' heads because it was so deep and intricate. Mm -hmm. And the way he would describe how he would work with all of the background. I mean, something like the Goodfellas shot, which up until that moment I had never realized is a shot that largely follows two people from behind for a minute on screen. Mm -hmm. And when you think of it in that context, that could have been a very boring shot. Because mm -hmm. it's the backs of two people's heads. And it probably would have, if it would have been me, I would have said, well, clearly we have to shoot a version from the front so you can see their faces and it cuts in between. We, or we have to get around the front at some point, right? You don't get around the front of them until they're into the restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, what makes that shot amazing is... Well, you catch them a little from the side at the beginning. A little, yes. When they get out of the car, right? Sure. But I'm talking about once they start I to cross the I understand what you mean. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, as Larry is describing it, He's just, he's telling us what he the business that he gave to all of these background players and how he placed them in the shot and the cool. interactions that happen and how Ray Liotta would look over his shoulder and that's how you get some FaceTime. That was the cue. And this but he and kept saying right. over and again, "I did this, I did this," and I'm thinking, okay, on a Scorsese movie, my assumption is, again, my thinking is, you're a Steadicam operator that you do X amount, but 
it's right. a DP and the director. Do, the way he described it, I realized he was responsible for making that shot into the shot that it is today, not just from a camera perspective, but yeah, designing every element of it. Yeah. So what, that was a moment you realized the collaboration that happened? The depth, a, of, a... the depth of collaboration that was possible and what mm -hmm. we as Steadicam operators in the right scenario should be offering, mm. which is to become, So that opened your mind a bit to the job itself. It opened my mind radically. Ah. Um, that it was not only a cool thing to do, it's what I needed, it's the kind of operator I needed to become, which right. is you're brought in as an expert on this machine, but in a larger sense, you should be an expert in camera motion mm -hmm. and designing a shot with camera motion so that you're not just putting the thing on and driving it through a crowd. You're actually designing how it drives through the crowd and how the crowd reacts to it being driven through, if you mm -hmm. know what I mean. Sure, of course I do. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, as he described all these nuances of how things, how he dialed things in. And sometimes it was like, I have to get the camera from point A to point B. I need to, that's just a technical nuts and bolts thing. I have to be able to get the frame wider for this next part. How do I have the actors help justify me picking up speed? What can I have them do that'll hide it or augment it? Mm -hmm. And describing little bits of business that he offered to them that they were able to workshop together and turn into something that actually became a great part of the shot. Right. Cool. Um, and so this was an incredible revelation for me, and it really shifted my focus on Steadicam in a big way, um, that it became all about how can I design shots to mm. make them the, inter the most interesting um, way that they can be. And ultimately, that is, it speaks to the fact that um, I was interested in things far beyond Steadicam, directing and, you know, DPing, I was already working as a DP, but the directorial mm -hmm. aspect of that, how to work with actors, how to speak to them, how to, he would even talk about how he politically dealt with some big actors that you mm -hmm. normally couldn't just walk up and say, hey, man, I need you to go slower around this corner. Because they go, yeah, no, I'm going to do it the way that I feel I'm going to do it. You just have to keep up. This is a direct story of one mm -hmm. of his. He didn't do that, but he came up and said, God, you know, maybe you can help me with this. I'm just having a hard time. I can't get through this doorway fast enough. It's just, you know, I'm just not, it's it's all me. I'm just not able to do it. And they have to yeah. go, well, I'll tell you what, I'll just slow down a little bit. Well, I'm sure you've done that. I'm sure you've done that. Oh exactly. I, I mean, I knew how the story ended before you. Right. Because we've all dealt with with those things and you, I've done it the wrong way before. Mm -hmm. And then I learned to do it the right way. Right. And, and you know, and <clears throat> sometimes when I've done it the wrong way and they say no, I've said <laughs> I've honestly said, it's been a long time, but I've said, well, I guess you, you won't be in the shot right then. And they don't like that. <laughs> no, I mean, look, that's a, that's, I mean, a, that's a risky way to put it. Well, like I said, yeah. I've done it the wrong way. But, yeah. And that was, but, you know, when I was learning and, you know, I'm frustrated by them because yeah. they won't help me. Yeah. So if, if you won't help me, I cannot get through this tiny doorway and, and, and make that U-turn that you're running through. Mm -hmm. So you won't be in frame. I mean, I'm just kind of telling them the truth. Sure. It's, it's not the right way to do it, but it's true. <laughs> right. It, it, but it's all about reading the personality just the same way that a director has to be able to read the actors in terms of how to direct them. It's, yeah, of it course. Is a, it's a you have to take. know what's going to work and what's not. And, if yeah. you know, and the longer you work with somebody, the more you know, like, they're receptive to this kind of approach or not receptive or... Yes. Yeah, the... A joy of being on a long-term show with an actor is you create a shorthand with each other, sure. and you hardly have to say it. You don't have to do any dancing around it. You just kind of go, "We got to do this," and they go, "Yep, got it. I'm going to make it work for you." Yeah. Um, 
I've literally said, um, hey, enter name here, mm-hmm. you know, hey, Charles. And they go, I need to hit that mark, right? Yeah. I go, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Like they answer the question before, you know, they, they I, were. I need, to, I need a beat and a half to be able to get around you. Can you just come up with some business? Yep, got it. No yeah. problem. Uh, so that that's the kind of stuff that I. Those are great I'm, actors, though. Because not all well, of them can do it. They're great actors in a very specific sense. In they understand way. the craft of sure. filmmaking and the difference between the thing working on screen sure. and you just trying to make it work around them. Right. Uh, the, you tend to find those more in television because they realize if they do it the right way, they get to go home earlier. Sure. They don't have to do seven more takes. They sure. do two takes and we go, right. Yeah. Sure. And, uh, of course, in features as well. It's, it's starting to become a bit of a lost art, though, I'm finding. Um we, we're in a floppier era of filmmaking that's less mark-based and less specific, and it's like, let the actors do their, find their thing. We're just going to hover around them handheld and just find it. And that's not going to encourage that sort of technical understanding of the craft. Right. Have you, I'm here, I've been hearing about this more. Have you experienced lately, like, people, like, directors or producers saying, like, we're just not going to use marks. We're going to let them do what they want. I've heard of it. I haven't, fortunately, haven't had to deal with that. I've heard of myself. it a bunch, too. Yeah. Have you, have you heard the result of that. I mean, I would imagine myself that a bunch of actors wouldn't even like that. They think they're yeah. doing a favor to the actors. Right. When I think certain actors, they want to know where they need to go. That's part of their process. I have to go here. I have to go there. Structure. I say this here. Right. Yeah. I, I think it depends on the... It depends on the actor. There, one of the things I find interesting, because I mostly work in comedy, is that um, so many comic... So many actors now working in comedy have come out of improv, which is a very different animal um, than other mm. backgrounds. A, they're used to working in ensembles. B, they have a, the yes and philosophy, mm-hmm. which is helpful in all degrees. It, they're much easier to work with, I find. They, they get, tend to get along better. Yes, the crew is part of the yes and for them. Yes. And if you go, I really need this, I'm like, of course, you got it. Right. Um, whatever makes it better. Um, so... However, that they may not have the technical aspect of it because they're they're used to doing their own thing, and for a lot of them, they make their own content, but they don't necessarily come from that experiential mm-hmm. background. So they understand a certain amount of filmmaking, but not maybe not the way we used to do it. Mm-hmm. So I uh, mentioned at the beginning, I mentioned all these projects that I know you from, and the one that stood out, and one of the main ones that made me go, "Holy cow!" was American History X. Right. And I loved the movie, even if there was no steady cam, and I would have loved the movie, to be honest. Sure. But you did some great shots, and there's that shot of Ed Norton coming down the stairs mm. right before he curbs the guy. Right now. before he curbs the guy, right. Did you take him outside? I can't remember. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of different shots in there. Yeah, it's yeah. not continuous. But uh, American History X was my first movie in L.A. Um, I did... I was super excited. My first day getting the gear out of the camera truck, and we were in uh, near Sunset Gower, and I looked up the street, and there was the Hollywood sign, and I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever. I, had, I actually wasn't living in L.A. at the time. Um, so I had the best time ever. Uh, it was a completely crazy production to work on, and anyone who is a fan of the movie should Google making of American History X because there's amazing stories very trippy director. Um, Tony K. Tony K. yes. The, uh, most of the stories are about the post-process, but it was just as crazy of a shoot because mm. he directed, he operated, and he shot, which at the time was a big 
No, no one did that. No one was really. I, I, there were a few people, maybe, but who? I I don't know. I can't think offhand. And it would have been much smaller. This was a pretty good size. It was movie pretty good size, but he treated it like it was a small film. He would bounce the light off the ceiling and just throw a camera on his shoulder and just shoot and shoot and shoot. And most of the crew would just be sitting there. I think the dolly grip laid track once in the entire feature. Wow. It wasn't that kind of movie. And um, you were hired as B camera, steady cam, or just steady cam? Yeah, uh, steady cam. I was hard to do B camera, steady cam. It was a non union, $10 million movie in LA when it, was it started. non union? It started that way. It organized within the first day. Oh. Um, everything about that movie was kooky. But I became the operator of record because of the staffing requirement. But Tony operated the A camera, and I do steady cam and B. And, was uh, there a lot of B? Yes. Oh, there was okay. a fair amount. Um, he shot an insane amount of film, like an insane amount. I'm not even going to go into how many roles, but it was ridiculous for a movie that size. I mean, past a million feet? Yes, past a million feet, yes, on, a t- on an eight-week shoot. Um, <laughs> yeah. Normally, that's like giant feature yeah, like with a million champagne, whatever. Yeah, we hit the <laughs> we hit the the uh, hundredth camera roll on Thursday the first week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and anyone who just came up in digital is like, I'm sorry, what? But right. uh, yeah, that was unusual. So crazy. Um, it was 35. It was 35. Black and, it and was white. BL three, I think, and uh, it was black and white in color. Uh, my favorite, right. my favorite story from that movie would be. Oh yeah, mostly, mostly color. Mostly color, yeah. But the black and white scenes were oh really so stick beautiful. Out. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, Tony had a unique and vision, and he was very talented. We we weren't sure what we were dealing with until we all watched his reel. Someone got that, and we're like, oh wow, this guy did some cool stuff. His commercial reel, yeah. But it was just very. Conf- no one was used to working in the style that he that he worked in, and. In that first week, I had to do a complicated Steadicam shot that was a point of view of one of the characters who was operating a camcorder with a flip-out screen. Those, mm. They had just come out with the first one of those Sonys mm. that had a little flip-out screen on it. And he said, I want, to have, I want to shoot it as if it's his point of view looking at that screen. And there was no advance notice on any of this. And it was like, now I've got to rig this thing in front of the film camera, this little camcorder, and... We used a magic arm, which is a, probably an eight-pound piece of grip gear, sticking way out in front of the of the Steadicam, and on a BL3. The whole thing was tremendously heavy and long. And if we had known, we could have rigged something up that was lightweight. But there was no advance notice, so, and I had to treat it like a point of view. So I'm whipping around from person to person. These whip pans that were and had tilts in them, and in a small apartment. And I did the first take. And Tony, who wasn't big on communication, which is why he tended to do all the jobs himself. Mm-hmm. He said, no, I, not that, this. And whatever it was that this was didn't seem very different at all from what I had done. I'm like, I, uh, trying to understand. And he was just very frustrated in general of anybody else on the set in that first week. And so I did another take, and he goes, no, no, no. Oh, just give it to me. I went, give you what, the steady cam? And he goes, yeah, just put it on me. I'll do it. I went, all right. We'll see how that this goes. This is a great learning experience for everybody. Yes. I mean, everyone went quiet on set because it's like he can't demand my Steadicam. I own the thing. But I, I went, all right, let's see how this works out, especially with this horrific version of a Steadicam that was just with the camcorder so unwieldy. In front of it. Yeah. Oh, God. So I put him in it and, uh, you know, sent him on his way inside the set. And I went and sat in his chair in front of the monitors, which was very cheeky. And I watched him flail around. I mean, this was not an easy shot at all, considering all those 
factors. And he would whip the camera around, and it would be on the ceiling, and he banged into walls. And Had he I, ever had a rig on before, do you think? I think he had, because he came out after a take and a half, dripping with sweat. Uh, I get this thing off me. Was, right? <laughs> and, uh, and I'm peeling it off him, and he's like, oh. He's just gasping for air, and he's like, I don't remember them being this heavy. And I'm like, well, today it is. Yeah. And we were fine after that. We were actually really good the rest of the shoot because he suddenly realized this is something I can't do. Charles re- has to do it. He re- and he respected how and hard it was to do that particular sure. shot, right? Yes, it, it was. Yes, exactly. So that worked out in my favor. That was uh, that was convenient. But so you got along okay with him? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, I've heard stories from my commercial days back in Florida. He used to work in Florida a lot. As a matter of fact, he he shot that documentary. I believe shot that Lake of Fire documentary in. In, in Florida, in Florida yeah. but he would stay, he'd come early for commercial jobs and stay later and shoot on his own. Oh, I mean, listen, um, fascinating character. I'm but really he used to come to set in pink suits with oh, yeah, yeah. bare feet, and is that how he was? Yeah, on? yeah all, all the crazy stuff. I mean, I, I won't even, that is his own podcast. I could do an hour podcast on the making of American History X from my perspective, <laughs> I literally. Um, that would have nothing to do with Steadicam at a certain point. It was really, everyone who worked on it, when we see each other now 20 years later, we're like, remember that one? Nothing like it. That war? Um, it was a very unique experience. And everyone kept saying to me, this is not how we normally do it here. This is not, Oh, because you were new to town. Yeah. Right? I was like, so this is filmmaking in L.A., huh? No, it isn't. Um, oh, that's funny. But, you know, American Ajax was a, a great first experience. And um, then I moved to L.A. shortly thereafter. And uh, my buddy Dave, who I was living in the basement of his, his house, was the operator on ER. And I came in to fill in for him a few times. Mm. And did a few episodes of that. And uh, which I then would come back and f- I would drop in there over the next 10 years at different times if, if they had to double up or someone was sick. And, uh, an incredible... He didn't do that show on. for that long, did he? He did have... four seasons or something like that. Yeah. Um, and Some uh, incredible stuff. Oh, incredible. I mean, it was such a, an amazing experience to be on a set that was so dialed around wonders. I've never seen anything like that. The, and everybody was into it. Everyone was in it and knew their places. You know, the director would start to lay out the shot with, you know, with a finger People rehearsal. People would fill in. People, yeah, the 80s would be setting all the background. You had regular um, background that was on for the entire 15-year run. They oh would do they did background. They stood in sometimes every now and then to give them a line, but mostly their job was getting paid to do background, who would walk alongside the steady cam as you're backing up and then, and play then do crosses. Not just, well, oh. they, might, they probably would play defense as well and help the other background. Oh, but, so, they'd, so they'd back along and just cross. And they do cross, and, and they would cross. take their own cues because they knew how to do it. it wow. You would do... On any given day, you might do up to three oneers. Then on another show, would like bring a show to its knees because of the complexity. On that right. show, it was just boom. Did they did they use a, th- a thousand foot mags a lot? No, 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 no. Ever on on Steadicam? Yeah, uh, maybe again we'd have to ask Dave about that shot. Okay, but no, right. no, it was it was a straight up lightweight two with you know four hundred okay. foot mags. It was it was very standard. Well, I remember them being. A good length. I don't remember exactly how long they were. That's why. That's why I asked. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many four-minute shots there were on that. Some of them really felt longer. Mm-hmm. I think Dave's shot was. Uh, I don't know. I'd have to look into it. But, yeah. Um, that's Dave. We're here to talk about. Oh yeah. Me. Back to you. You again. can have Dave here, and you should. Dave's I'm a great speaker. Well, on an on. I mean, another. Uh, believe me, it's on my. He's on my list. Good. I just don't know him as. I, I barely know Dave, so I. Great, you know. A great guy. You know, he's he's uh, he's one of my favorite Steadicam operators. He, he again, 
that combination of the technical proficiency and accuracy, but also the thinking. Mm-hmm. You know, he directed an episode of ER when it was like 28, 29, which was a very radical thing for a network to approve at that time. Yeah. Um, so, and then right after that, he did West Wing. He left and he did West Wing. He started that out, and then he left, and I came after him once again, following in his footsteps, and did two <laughs> months in West Wing, which was... Not bad footsteps. Oh, they were great. I mean, both of those shows were were so great for Steadicam, as a Steadicam operator, um, and they don't really make them like that anymore. But the difference with West Wing was it was a new show. I was on the first season of that, and it was, it was a little more difficult set. Um, I had to work nonstop. I was doing a camera Steadicam on that, just like on ER, but... It was a very fast-moving set lighting-wise. Tom Delruth had come up with a very ingenious lighting scheme that took no time at all. Um, I was getting my ass kicked daily on that. And the the bathroom on uh, on was, I think, several stages away. I and remember I, used to, I, I used worked on that show. To it. Did just, you? Yeah, two oh, it was a different from... stage, I think, after the first season. But I, were, I would you li- weren't on the first season, though, were you? I was on first season. Oh, you were. Yeah, yeah. So you had two stages. Two stages. Yeah. And they turned it into. I mean, they still had other stages, but they turned the whole West Wing into one stage. Exactly. Stage over by monstrous. Unbelievable. I I got lost in there every day for a week. Yeah. I couldn't find where set was. Yeah. That was an incredible set. The first time I I went into Walk It the day before I went to work. And they were on the other stage, and the set that I was on, the stage that I was on had the the Oval Office. And I'm walking around, and I was like, I wonder where the Oval Office is. And again, because these were all designed as self-contained, continuous, it wasn't your classic set where there's they just, constantly everything back just of keeps set going. walls. Everything was interconnected. <laughs> yeah. And I see there a, a half-open door, and there's a rope in front of it that says, uh, no tours beyond this point, like a little sign. And through the I peek through the half-open door, and I realize... Um, this that's the Oval Office, and I'm just kind of craning my neck around, and there's no one else on the stage. And, you know, like an art department guy walks past, and he goes, that's just a prop sign. This isn't the real White House. You can go and look in there if you want. <laughs> They're like, it's the Oval Office. It sure looks like it. It was cool. And they had security set. dressed like like West Wing pages. I don't know if they did first oh, season. God, I don't remember that. Yeah. I would have been like season six or whatever. That's I cool. Don't know, I didn't realize you then. Much later. I didn't do Steadicam on it. Oh, okay. No, no, no. no. I, it was like weeks after I moved to L.A. and I needed money and I PA'd on second unit oh, for two weeks that's on cool. Um, that's a good story. Uh, I wish we had met back then. So that, it was uh, it was a... Well, well, let me ask you a question straight. specifically yeah. because there were... I've heard through either Tommy or I, I don't, um, but there were there were shots that started one place and ended about five feet away from where it started, mm-hmm. but were like two and a half page scenes mm. that would go, and then <laughs> did you ever do shots? I mean, like, like kind of that? going in a big circle. It would just do a just, circle just to fool the audience. Pass through the well. He had two and a half pages. Yeah, yeah, of course. And we don't want two people sitting across the desk talking. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll walk. Right. Uh, ER was the same way, by the way. They would often design shots that if it continued another ten feet, you would suddenly realize you got back to where you started, but they would end just before that point. Right. It was all about fooling the audience, which, I mean, there's an old that's a tradition. The Goodfellas shot goes through the kitchen unnecessarily. If they'd just gone straight, instead of turning to the kitchen, you would have gone right into the copa, into the, the, the dining I room. I didn't know that. Oh, my God, you have to watch it. They take a left turn into the kitchen, they take four right turns, they come right out the same door and continue on the hallway. 
Um, and that is part of the brilliance of that shot and how Larry designed it. You don't realize it because the corners are all taken differently and there's distractions. Yeah. Um, with uh, ER and West Wing, it was so convoluted and there were so many people walking around, you didn't really have to worry about that. But yes, these the long walk and talks. Uh, well, and it's rapid fire dialogue. Style. Yeah. And, and, uh, and there's so much going on, it's hard to pay attention to the sets. You just know they look right. good. There's a lot of it's activity. Kind of, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. everywhere in those. Those shows is the busiest place on Earth ever. <laughs> and to- Tommy did a lot of those early episodes, did he not? Mm-hmm. Or yep, he did. Yeah, he did. So those, I mean, you know, those were inherited shows for me. I didn't get to establish a look or uh, or create a look. What was more interesting for me after that was uh, I went on to Scrubs. And I, I started, know, I which the- is without sounding offensive, is like ER light. It's no, a I'm vi- offended. It's a lot. It happened. No, I, of course it is. It was like your life. You know what I mean? Of yeah. course it is. Listen, on day one or something, early on, you know, on ER, the uh, the prop guys were literally like medical technicians. Like the, the depth of the knowledge they had about yeah. that stuff was accurate and deep. Right. Um, they knew their stuff. I go on ER, uh, I go on Scrubs, and enough of it had rubbed off on me that I'm like, I'll move that IVAC a little to the right. And there shouldn't be a bag hanging on that IV stand because there's no patient in that room. And they're all looking at me like, what? This is a comedy, dude. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll let go of that. And I would occasionally talk to the um, the medical consultants that uh, that were on Scrubs because on ER, they were like revered. They're medical consultants. They would take the cast in and have these hour-long sessions where they'd be going through all the beats of the surgery, right. the text. And that was the text, by the way, the best time on ER because that was the one time you could really take off. And just leave. as a camera operator, you're like, oh, it's going to be tech for 45 minutes? Awesome. I'm going to go get a snack and, right, yeah, and yeah. chill. That's my downtime. Uh, we didn't have those on Scrubs. So I talked to the, talk to those guys and be like, uh, the, the medical consultant, I go, you know that this this is this, isn't it? They're like, yeah, we're not, we're not going to worry about that. You know, that's, we're going to go with the inaccuracy. They don't, nobody cares. Yeah. Um, Scrubs was uh, an incredibly wonderful and joyous experience. Um, super funny, super fun. Yeah, the, the cast was great. The, uh, you know, we were all young. The showrunner was 32. You know, I was about the same age. Um, the, it was a great crew. We were all sort of squeezed off into this little strange abandoned hospital in North Hollywood. Oh, yeah. We were on a studio lot. And we, we had a blast. Um, and there was a great visual uh, vocabulary to that show where the camera got to do fun things. We would always be panning off into someone's back, and then it would come out of some similar color. Into some, there were all these great transitions. Yeah, you did and, those, those like fade, fade in, fade out kind yeah, of things. Yeah, dissolves. And, and yeah, they got really dissolves. more and more fancy. I got to come up with some really cool stuff all the time. Yeah. Um, one of my favorites was we had a we were constantly doing this bit where someone, usually Zach Braff, would walk down this one hallway in slow motion at the and there'd be, you know, emo music and it would be the end of the the episode, the here's what I've learned kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Sort of pullback shot. And after we'd done a bunch of those and there was one scheduled, I said, We've got to be able to improve on this. So I came up with the idea of doing a roundy round, like 360 around him as he walked down the corridor. But the, the corridor wasn't wide enough to accommodate that. So I took his stand-in off to the side and said, let's, let's try something. As I come around, you slide one direction. And then I come around the backside and you slide the other direction. But make it look like you're not going left and right. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm essentially making an oval around you that, that looks like a circle, if you follow me. Yeah, of course. And we, well, he's bananaing he's this bananaing. way as you're going around. Yes. And you're... 
right next to the wall, and he's yeah. closer to the other wall. Exactly. And switching back. So we did a little test recording of it, and I showed it to, I believe it was Bill Lawrence, uh, the showrunner, who was directing that episode, possibly. But um, I don't quite remember. And he said, oh, that's great. Let's do that. And I... Um, I went to Zach and explained what we we're going to do, and he was super energized being oh, a good. filmmaker himself. He's like, yeah, that's super cool. I can't, that's awesome. Let's do that. And that was a great little beat, and it was much more interesting. Actually, Bill didn't direct that. I remember what it was. He said after they posted that episode, he goes, that's the coolest shot we've ever done. Oh, cool. Which I loved. Yeah, course. nice. Nice. That, no, that's fun. That, that show was crazy heavy steady cam. Yeah, it was. For a comedy that wasn't really putting an emphasis on it, there was, we had some really creative directors, uh, Michael Spiller and Mark Buckland come to mind, who really got into it. And we would have these shots that went from A to B to C to D to E um, with the Steadicam, and it was a lot of fun. But it was a different style than ER. It wasn't yeah. like rapid fire, like there's this. It wasn't like catch this moment as you pan through it. It was like... More beat related, am beat. I? Yeah, no, that's correct. Yeah, I, and and we were on, generally we we're on wider lenses, and it sure. would sort of get into people's faces in a certain way, and you do these little wraparound reveals. I really want to watch the show again because there's some stuff, a lot of stuff I've forgotten that we got to do on that. That was uh, well, it just groovy. occurred to me that you did a bunch of stuff like there was a bunch of outside stuff when they would like play basketball, and then you would walk them in the hospital. Well, there was one shot in particular which was a continuous cold open all Steadicam oneer. That started with a basketball. Donald Faison had to do a three-pointer. He had to sink a three-pointer at the very beginning of the shot. And then we took all the characters down a hall into an elevator up. And these were practical elevators. They weren't movie elevators. Up no, three floors. No, I've been floors. in that. I, I worked there. Yeah. So I know, yeah. And then out, down some more hallways and into intensive care all in one shot. Um, and if you're interested, you can look this up uh, on YouTube. There's a clip that they did that I think went on the DVD that shows how – I think we – Take, it got into the 30s, take-wise. We're somewhere in the 30s. And almost all of that was Donald missing that three-pointer. And they have a montage of him missing it over and over and over. You see every take where the screw-up is. Um, and the funny part for me was, yeah, that was the tough part for him. He got it over in the beginning. He was getting very frustrated. And Zach was more and more gleeful about him of getting course, shut down. Of course, yeah. At the end of that shot, in the last... 35 seconds of it, I had to do three whip pans, 180-degree whip pans. So that oh. was my three-pointer, and I had to do it at the end of the shot. <laughs> oh, boy. And I cannot say that I was very happy with the take that ended up being the the one that they kept. And in fact, I went down to editorial, and I petitioned them to make a cut within the whip pans, because oh, you can why always... Didn't they? Because they want to be able to say they. No one cared but me about the oh. horizon roll that that ended up in those shots. Mm. That was literally a function of me knowing it was the last take and kind of getting in my head and the psych out factor, mm -hmm. which, for anyone who's a steady cam operator, will understand. The people who don't do it or are thinking about it, the the psych out factor with steady cam, as you know, it's so easy to do because yeah. it requires so much nuance and subtlety with your operating hand. As soon as you get in your head about something and you have the minutest amount of, like, tightening up, Tension or, yeah. it will immediately screw up the shot, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go, oh, here's the hard part of the shot. I used to literally have a running pattern in my head when I'd approach that hard part of the shot and be like, relax, have a great time. This is fun. You love doing the steady kick. <laughs> this is easy. 
and then you can nail those. Really, pieces. and that's how you worked your way through. That's why I worked part. Yeah, the hard huh. stuff. Because otherwise, you kind of go, oh, the hard part's coming up. Oh, I got to really focus. I really got to get it right. Oh no, it's the last <laughs> take. That's what's going to screw you up. Right. That's what's going to make you tense. Right. Right. You have just have to laugh and have fun with it, and then you can do anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, that that at the end of the take thing. It, it, I was going to say it's nice that Faison had that shot, the hard shot at the beginning of the take. Well, it would have been ridiculous not to. I mean, we would never have gotten made our day. Of course. Of course. Uh, or maybe he would have come through and nailed it in three. You never know. Well, but, he, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, but by the end of the take, he might have been a little more relaxed. I, I mean, who knows what who could knows? have happened. Yeah, but, yeah. but anyway, but my, I, I did a shot uh, a few years, five, six years ago for a pilot, a hospital-type pilot, and we did— uh, we did a lot of study cam, and we did like a four or five minute one or um, ten, ten or twelve, ten at least ten speaking parts, mm-hmm. and it's all doctors and an ER. And at the very end, I'm doing like a like a two seventy around these people or whatever, um, and landing. And as I land in the over, a woman comes running in from outside. Oh my God! Where's my husband? You know. What was local talent in New Mexico? Mm-hmm. And the the poor lady, I don't know what was wrong, but we did 47 takes, mm. probably mm. 20 of which were ruined because she didn't come in at the right moment mm. or at all. Mm. And, you know, I love actors and everything, but I, I never understood that. And I went out and the second, second was out there with her and I said, what's going on? And he said, I'm pushing her. And she's saying, no, it's not time yet. Oh, God. They're yelling in his ear, Sunder, Sunder. Oh, that's rough. You know? That is rough. And, uh, and uh, anyway, but um, uh, so I can understand your frustration with <laughs> Of course with you that. can. So wait, uh, well, we're going to talk again at some point, but, but I do want to talk about office space. Okay. All right. Because, I, you know, we don't want to go on forever, but office space is such a good film. And, you know, I think I caught on to it when everybody else did, what was it, 10 or 12 or 15 yeah, or whatever. Yeah, it, it didn't do anything theatrically when it came out, but a few years later, Comedy Central bought it and showed it 150 times, and it got discovered. Right. And then it was a huge success on DVD. It was one of those early DVD, like, hits. Huge. Um, Office Space was um, my second or third studio feature as an A-camera Steadicam operator. Um and we went down to Austin and did this little comedy that was very simple and kind of confined and very dry. And I definitely appreciated the the humor behind it. Um, and I didn't know how good it was going to be or not. It seemed like a nice little funny movie. Had Beavis and Butthead ended yet before uh, they did that? Or was it still I going? think that was done. King of the Hill was, was his, okay. Mike's main thing. But so he was kind of legendary at this. Point. Yeah, I mean, no, the, yeah. I mean, the this world was his, comedy and yes, he, he this was his first live action yeah. feature. But he was a known quantity for sure. Um, he was great to work with. He's very sort of quiet and dry, but very very funny. And my favorite thing about him was that he would you couldn't get him to do his characters. If you walked to him and said, "Do yeah, do Hank, do do be this," that wouldn't work. But he would stand back and observe. And do the voices to himself. And if you happen to be standing next to him, he'd be like, this is cool. (laughs) And at that point, everyone was doing that, the late 90s. Everyone was doing that bit. And I'm hearing it from the actual guy next to me going, this is great. Oh, cool. You know, it's like at the end of the movie when they set the the office on fire. He's like, fire. (laughs) 
Um, I again, I could do a whole podcast on Office Space, yeah, uh, sure. because and most of it is just joyous Mike Judge stories. But it's a different podcast than American it, History X. It, it's a slightly different one. From a Steadicam <laughs> perspective, um, it's a simple film visually in a lot of ways. I I had a few shots in there that I was really happy with that were subtle. It's the kind of thing that a Steadicam operator might watch and go, "Oh, I can see that that's hard." Mm-hmm. It doesn't. No one else is going to notice it. Yeah. Um, probably the most noticeable or memorable piece, of course, is the uh, the printer trashing scene. Where I was going to say, it's iconic. It's that, one it's of the iconic, funniest uses yes. of, of slow motion ever. <laughs> it's it's a great design. What I can tell you about that uh, was that Steadicam. That was Steadicam. Mostly Steadicam. Yeah. Oh, okay. There's some there's some lock, lock, low angle lock offs, but most of it's Steadicam. And the way that came about was we got out to the field on the day of, and Mike said. I apologize. I can't do. I can't not do a slight Mike Judge impersonation ahead, sure. when he's speaking, and I don't do a great I'm sure one. Sure, he but won't mind. He's like, well, I kind of want this to look like a music video, like a rap video, but uh, I've never done one. So, how do you do that? And the DP Tim Sure said, well, I haven't done one, and you know, everyone's looking around. I got, uh, I've done them. <laughs> Raise my hand. And at that point, in the '90s it was all about wide angle, low, low mode corkscrewing into the person who's like doing this sort of beastie boy thing into the lens leaning down mm-hmm. into the camera and I said this is this is the look that of the ones that I've done and they're like great we'll do that then so we're in low mode we're doing a lot of dutching and um, we shot that thing and uh, one little story that I can tell you is that the there's certain shots looking down at the ground of the printer kind of coming apart yeah yeah and uh, a fair amount of that is stuff that I shot as a splinter unit off on the side of a freeway in a separate city when I was going and getting establishing shots with, like, PAs wearing the, the, the outfits. Oh, gosh. Completely different time and place. But That's um, funny. That particular scene becoming iconic, the biggest moment for me was when uh, Family Guy parodied it. And in the animation, they did the Dutch rolls. They did the corkscrewing shots, and I was very honored by that. <laughs> Um, of course. Uh, one of the operators called me a couple of years ago because they were shooting a commercial that was a very specific parody of that, and I really wanted to go and stop by the set oh. and visit. And just was it here in town? It yeah, it was. Oh, it was that's a little, funny. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's really fun to have participated in something that becomes iconic, and everyone sure. always says, as says I did when I was younger, what was it like? And m- the best response for something like that came from a camera assistant who, when I was just breaking in, had worked on a movie that this particular uh, DP that we were working with was like, oh, my God, man, you worked on whatever this movie was. Yeah. What was that like? And the camera assistant, who was just super chill, he looks at me and goes, well, you know, we showed up in the morning, we shot some stuff, we had lunch, we shot more stuff and went home. And there was, like, this little silence because the DP wanted to hear, like, oh, it was so amazing, we knew it was going to be great. And it's right. like, no, every everything you work on, you can have a good feeling about it, you but you never know until it's done. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Did you think Office Space was going to be a hit or no, not a hit? No, I had or... no idea. Right. I and mean, we never do. And, of course, it, it was Because so much changes in post, too. Of course. But I've had good feelings about projects as we're doing it. And I can feel really good about my work on it, but that's not the same thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it, some of my favorite shots have never been celebrated by anyone but me. Mm-hmm. But I have my own personal feeling about them as a steady cam, a former steady cam operator now. But that I really, I go, okay, I this was a tough bit of business, 
and no, because it's invisible, no one's going to think about it. Maybe another Steadicam operator might, but they don't know what it took for me to do if it. If they know what room you were in or uh, yeah, what some was behind you yeah. or right. And right. then the hard thing as a Steadicam operator is to not put that shot in a reel because you know it was hard. No one else knows it, so they're not going to think much of it. In right. office space, the uh, the therapist dies, right? The, head, the the guy has a heart attack. Yeah. And there's a shot in low mode where I'm, I fly over him and up into Ron Livingston. I had to step over the guy who weighed like 275 pounds or I don't know what. I had to I step steady over. him. Yeah, steady cam, yeah. Wow. And I literally like doing a big reaching step with my little legs over this guy in low mode pushing up, you know. And I had that on my reel, and then I realized eventually no one knows or cares that I had to step over the guy, so there's no point. Well, I always assumed – I mean, I guess I never thought about how that shot was done. Yeah, well, why would But you? I never thought it was steady cam. Well, that's nice. I mean, it's not even perfect. There's a little wobble at the end of it. But um, I know we're getting close to wrapping up. There's something philosophically that I want to talk about um, globally, and that is I stopped doing steady cam uh, in about 2010 or 11. Uh-huh. Um, after 25 years, it was almost exact. And the main reason is I just wanted new challenges. Um, I was just sort of more, in, I felt like I had said everything I needed to say. And my 15 years of being obsessed with Steadicam, followed by five years of it's a good job, followed by five years of I'm interested in doing something else. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever feel like you did every shot? No, not by No, me. really? No, God, no. I mean, mostly working in television, you do, you're like, I've done a lot of, tracking two people backwards through a hallway that turns into an over. I've done a lot of those. Um, and there were some shots that would come out and other things. I go, oh, I'm jealous. I wish I, mm-hmm. I wish I had done that. And I think I knew it was time to get out when I saw those shots and go, wow, that looks really hard. I'm glad I didn't have to do that. <laughs> um, so where I'm at now, and people constantly ask me, do you miss it? And... There's, I'll tell you very honestly, here's, here's what I miss the most about it. Being on set and working with actors and the things we talked about earlier where you get to really design the shot and get roll up your sleeves sure. and talk to the actors. I still get to do a certain amount of that as a DP. Um, I worked with one of my regular operators on an 11-minute one or 13-minute one or short film, and it was really a collaboration, me, the director, and the Steadicam operator, and it was super fun because we were just going around in that little triangle. Who did that? Uh, That was Neil Bryant. Oh, cool. Yeah, Yeah. and he did a phenomenal job. Um, So I, but generally on a day-to-day basis on a TV show, I'm too wrapped up with the lighting to really be able to get in there. I miss that that connection, sort of getting my hands dirty on set and working Mm -hmm. directly with the actors, that communication. Um, I don't miss schlepping the thing around, and I don't miss doing the walk and talks down the hall that turned into an over, the things that I'd done over and over again. So, you know. You don't uh, miss lugging it in and out of the car when oh you're day playing? Oh, my God. Yeah, that's the worst <laughs> part of it. I started to feel as a day player that they were paying me just to schlep my gear and set it up and break it down and take it out. Oh. The middle of the day was like, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that part. So um, what I ultimately look for in a Steadicam operator when I hire is – the following. As a steady cam operator, I always knew my place in the scheme of things, which is to say I could look at my shot and go, I could have done better here, I, I'm act, or I'm really happy with that. But there were other operators that I felt could do a better job than me, because I see their work. I go, I don't think I could have done that shot quite as well. And I could see someone else's work and go, eh, I, was, I'm, I can do that shot better. But I had it, I was always hypercritical of my work, not to a fault, but I would like, look at it and kind of go, eh, I got it. I got 95% on that one. I'd like mm-hmm. to, I should work on that. Yeah. I was almost never completely satisfied. And now the guys that I work with, 
are exactly the same to the point where they might get discouraged and they'll go home kind of at the end of the day, they've got that face like, I didn't quite get it. And we'll talk, we'll talk on the phone on the way home. And I'll say, I know what you're saying. I know what I saw the monitor. I saw what was missing that got you discouraged. You and I are the only ones who are ever going to notice that because Mm. you got 95% of it. Mm. Um, I love that you take that, you took that inside, but don't worry about it. You know, as one of my operators said to me recently, I just want you to be happy with my work. And I said, I am happy with your work. We all have those moments, especially on a TV schedule. Yeah. You know, uh, the, what's important for me is that you still care. If you were just phoning it in and you, the shot, that shot, and you were just like, nailed it, I'd be like, mm, but did you? Right. Um, no, I'm with you. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. But of there's course. plenty. It's a global thing. We're all like that. And again, on a Having TV, pride in your work. Yeah, of course. And on a TV show, you, as an operator, you have to be very sparse about when you ask for another one. Absolutely. That's, a, that's a, its own skill. You and have even to be, when you, have you to do, be able to go you may on. be told very nicely, no. Right. <laughs> and I'm sometimes the one, by the way, that has to say that, which is sure. they'll, they'll come to me and they go, can we get one more? And I'll go, we can't. Politically, right. we can't do it. Yeah. Um, and no, I, I totally know what you mean. But look, we're going to have to talk again because we could talk all day, but we'll have to do it another time. And we'll talk about all the other interesting stuff you've done, <laughs> which, so which I love. I, and I, I could talk about it all day. but uh, So, guys, upvote this episode. <laughs> I don't upvote. Okay. All right. Whatever you say. <laughs> I'll explain it to you later. Don't worry but about the, it. But thanks, buddy. Yeah, I it's appreciate it. It's been a lot it. of fun, Brad. Yeah. It's thanks for all the, uh, all the great stories. Thanks again to Charles for doing the show. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did as well. One clarification I need to make um, regarding Tony Kay and Lake of Fire. I didn't make it clear that I had just heard that that's what he was doing, that he was going to Florida and then shooting the documentary on the side. Um, I think it's true. I heard it a long time ago, but I'm not 100% sure. So maybe take it with a grain of salt. Just wanted to make that clear. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to contact me, you can contact me at walkingbackwardspodcast at gmail.com.